And I would invite you to follow after me as we follow very likely after the practice of Jesus and the disciples who would have recited what uh, they called the Shema and we call the Great Commandment uh, at least twice a day and when they came in front of the Scripture. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning uh, comes from the ninth chapter of Luke, beginning in verse 51. It is part of a section that we'll spend uh, uh, Lent in, and that is it's a section of the Gospel of Luke that talks about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. And that journey uh, begins here in uh, the 51st verse of chapter 9. When the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent two of his messengers ahead of him into a Samaritan village to prepare things for him. But they did not welcome him there. And uh, when his disciples, two of his disciples, James and John, heard this, they asked Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. It is customary when an advanced team for a special event, a large event, or a very significant visitor comes to your town, that you roll out the red carpet for the advanced team. Uh, you'll remember in San Antonio on a number of occasions when NFL teams have said they were going to consider us, and so they send their emissaries, and we come up with a great presentation for them and show them every sort of good thing we can. Same thing when the Final Four Committee from the NCAA comes to visit, and we show them... As good a time as possible. It's just customary. That's how things work. Uh, last year at this time, uh, I was in a, a hotel in another town and I was leading a small pastors group. But I lead it for a larger organization called the Texas Methodist Foundation, which schedules a lot of conferences. And so for the three days I was there with my small group, the hotel could not have been more wonderful. If I even thought something, they had it ready for us. And, and I was pretty amazed. And then I found out at the end what had happened as I got ready to check out. They asked if they could have a few minutes of my time. And then they told me how much they liked and had heard about the organization uh, that I was representing. And they were hoping that my experience was so good that larger groups would be sent in the future to their hotel. Now, I wasn't surprised or even offended by this. We try to treat the advanced team well, so the significant person or the event will follow. That's normally what happens. But it didn't happen in this Samaritan village. Jesus sends his advanced team, or he calls them messengers, which is real interesting because the word in Greek for messengers is also the word in Greek for angels. So anyway, Jesus sends two people to prepare the way, but they don't find the red carpet they find rejection, the same sort of rejection that Jesus finds from that village as well. And when his disciples hear about this rejection, their response is pretty simple. It's, well, let's nuke them. You know, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven and, and destroy them? 
Now, what I want to tell you this morning is there's actually some biblical basis for what they said. They're not just way out there. They're actually following something they've seen in the Bible. And and it kind of goes something like this. The most significant person who had lived in the Older Testament that the people were looking for to return uh, was a man named Elijah. 800 and some odd years before Jesus, Elijah had done great things. And the belief was, uh, before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come. So they were very excited thinking Elijah would come. And so when John the Baptist came, he dressed like Elijah, talked like Elijah, hung out in the places Elijah hung out. They got very excited. But then John the Baptist died. So apparently the thinking was the new Elijah is Jesus. And it's interesting that uh, Luke sort of gets caught up in this because he said when the time approached for Jesus to be taken up into heaven, and if you call time out there for a moment, you think, now in the Bible, who's the last person that was taken up into heaven? Anybody? It was Elijah. It was Elijah. And so even Luke says, you know, there's lots of reason to, to think this. And so Eli- it would be, we could not overestimate the importance of Elijah to the people. And so uh, Elijah's story runs really rampant. So the disciples think at the very least they've got somebody as good as Elijah. And this is what you need to know about Elijah's story. If you go back in the story of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, twice, twice Elijah calls down fire from heaven to zap people. He does it with a, a captain and his 50 men who have come from a very bad and wicked king of the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Samaria. Uh, he zaps them. They send another 50 after him, and he zaps them too. So biblically, I mean, they've seen this done before, and Elijah did it, so why not? And then these people in the Samaritan village had been at the very least inhospitable to Jesus and his advance team. And so if you go back to the first biblical example of inhospitality was in two towns called Sodom and Gomorrah. And some angels had been sent to Sodom and Gomorrah and they had been very roughly treated. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire came down from heaven. So, I mean, the disciples are kind of, they're getting their Bible sort of right on this thing. Elijah does that and hospitality uh, merits that. And then on top of it, there's no other way to describe the way the Jews feel about the Samaritans than this. They're heretics. Heretics. On the major biblical issues of the day, they're just wrong, according to the Jews. First of all, the Jews believe that the mountain on which you worship is Mount Zion. The Samaritans believe the mountain on which you worship God is Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, is mentioned in the Older Testament. And then the Jews believe that, that all of, the, of the, their Bible, from, uh, from Genesis all the way through their last book was Second Chronicles, the whole thing, the prophets, everything in between, that's all the inspired Word of God. But those heretical Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They were just on so many practices and issues of biblical interpretation, they were wrong. So, the disciples put it all together. They're heretics. They're inhospitable. And by the way, Elijah's done this, so why can't we? And they call down, they want to call down fire. So in a way, it makes perfect biblical sense. And yet Jesus does not entertain this response, not even for a moment. We're told when they say, shall we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? That the scripture says Jesus turned. In other words, like he's just not going to brush it off. He turns and rebukes them. He says, 
wrong. That's not how we do things. But it's in the Bible. Fire on the, inhospi- on the inhospitable. Elijah doing fire. They're wrong on the biblical issues of the day. It's all here. And yet Jesus tells them they're wrong. You know, just because a person quotes the Bible to you does not make them right. Because there's a phrase that I've heard before, and I think it fits the disciples right at this point. And the phrase goes something like this. There are people that know the Bible, but they do not know God. They may know the scriptures, but they don't know the character of God behind the scriptures. So we can go back even in our own country. And we can see how the Bible was used by people to argue that slavery was not only defensible, it was appropriate. And that it was God's will. And they took particular scriptures and, and, and made their biblical basis. Less than a hundred years later in Nazi Germany, there are Christians using the very same Bible who agree that it's not only appropriate, it's probably a good thing to disenfranchise the trade unions and the communists and the Jews and to round them up and arrest them. It made perfect biblical sense to them. They knew the Bible, but they didn't know the God of the Bible. Because Jesus is going to show them on this journey to Jerusalem that the God of the Bible doesn't work through coercion, but works through the cross. The God of the Bible doesn't work through power to change people's lives. The God of the Bible works through love. So if that's their misunderstanding, it makes me wonder what causes people to misinterpret the Bible? What causes people to misapply the Bible? And in a word, in this instance, and in my own life, it would be rejection. Their Messiah has been rejected by the Samaritans. So, so often when someone we love or support is rejected, we feel the rejection. So if you don't like our political party, or our candidate, or our stand, or our school, or our team, you're not just rejecting them and invalidating them, you're invalidating us. You're invalidating me. And when people feel invalidated and rejected, they will grab for whatever they can to find validation. Rejection, in a word, caused these two disciples who for three years had sat at the feet of Jesus to completely misapply and misinterpret the Bible. Now, I tell you that because all of us every day are candidates for rejection, right? From the time we get up in the morning... Pretty much all day long, something we stand for, something we do, something we say or don't say will end up being rejected. It it can start. I mean, you know, you're on 410, you get cut off. You get disrespected. Someone has 14 items, not 13 in the express line. I mean, all sorts of invalidation can come your way. Someone at work misinterprets your action or inaction or your words. All day long, we have the opportunity to be rejected and to be invalidated. Well, we're not alone. If you look at the journey of Jesus and Luke carefully, uh, uh, Donna Bellaby pointed this out uh, for me between services, you'll see that this journey in Luke starts in rejection in chapter 9 and goes all the way to the cross, which ends in rejection. Friends, rejection is real. And we have to deal with it because it will cause us to misuse God's word and to mistreat other people. So here's my thought. 
A couple of things, I think, help me in the midst of rejection to try to keep at least my biblical wits about me. The first one is this, and I know it sounds silly because Lent is supposed to be about what you give up and self-denial, and, and that's true. But I want to tell you, if you want to stand when others are invalidating you or rejecting you, the place you have to stand is, first of all, self-acceptance. If you can't accept the fact that you are a beloved son or daughter of God, where you are right now, independent of what you've done or have not done, then you won't be able to stand on it when your positions or your loyalties are being attacked or threatened. I thought it was really strange the first time I ever read this sentence, but it's making more sense to me now. The sentence goes something like this. All change starts in self-acceptance. Because if we change only to get accepted, that's not going to be a lasting change. And then we're hooked into always trying to prove ourselves to somebody else. If we're really going to be who God has called us to be, the foundation is to know that we're loved no matter what. And it allows me, when the rejection starts flying, to be able to stay uh, grounded. Uh, A saying that I found helpful is from uh, the late Fred Craddock, who used to say, when I'm at war with myself, I make casualties of everybody around me. If you, do you remember those old cartoons? If you're old enough, there used to be uh, a guy walks into a saloon, a cowboy uh, cartoon, and, and a brawl ensues. And so people, just like a tumbleweed, just start picking up people into the fight. And then they, they roll out the doors of the saloon and down the street, and pretty soon you've got a mass of people involved in this dispute. But it only started with one dispute, and it just collected people as it went. And when you and I are not accepting ourselves... We're like that. We're like that tumbleweed just gathering as we go and other people get sucked in to our lack of acceptance and it doesn't go well. So my first hint is uh, I over, try to overcome rejection by knowing that no matter what you say about me or to me, I'm still loved, I'm valuable, I'm accepted. The second thing is this. I try to remember that the God of the Bible, as shown to us in Jesus, changes people's lives by love. I know it's cliche. All you need is love or love is the answer. It seems cliche, but that's because it's been true for centuries. Jesus models a God that changes people not through threats, but through love. Not through coercion but through love. And it's fascinating to me that non-Christians look at Jesus and they seem to pick it up sometimes faster than we who are Christians. We're still trying to, to threaten them into changing and yell at them into changing, but they see there's a different way. It was Gandhi that said this. Gandhi said if the Christians uh, had done what Jesus told them to do, which is love your enemies, he said the world would have been changed many, many, many years ago. Martin Buber, a a very devout um, existentialist philosopher and Jew, said this. Well, I'm a Jew, he said, "So, so it's hard for me to believe in Jesus, he said, but I believe with Jesus. And what he meant is, I think Jesus is right in the way he lives his life and in what he taught and in what he did. And I wonder sometimes how many Christians believe with Jesus. Do we approach another person our situation the way Jesus would approach them, or in our rejection, in our defensiveness, do we approach it another way? Love, not threats, will change people. I further believe love and not correct doctrine or biblical interpretation will change people. Now, I am not in favor of misinterpreting the Bible. 
I'm just go on record here. But I also think that no matter how good our doctrine or interpretation is, if it is not clothed and infused with love, it's not going to lead to any sort of change. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians. He said, we speak the truth in love. Truth is important, but truth is never more important than love. Because love is the way that people change. And then finally, I think it's not just uh, love works instead of threats or love works instead of right doctrine. Love works instead of, in, um, instead of miracles. Jesus did all sorts of miracles in the Gospels. No question about it. Um, but one of the things Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of angels, if I had all these powers, said Paul, but I did not have love, Paul said, I have nothing. It's not miracles that are going to change people, but miracles infused with love, surrounded with love, worked in and through love. Now that's a different matter. That's what will change people. People change, uh, I think, um, when they feel the, the warmth and the sense of compassion that uh, that we offer they're more likely than when they feel our judgment and our rejection uh, it's a story i've told some of you before but i, I still think it, it fits the point there's a uh, years ago on a sunday afternoon a family's out for a drive mom dad two kids and dad's driving and uh, suddenly the kids start yelling from the back seat dad pull over pull over stop and and he's like what he was afraid he was going to hit something and they said there's a cat over on the side of the road uh, there, we need to get it. And dad keeps driving, looks at mom and said, we're having a nice drive, aren't we? And she says, no, you better turn around. So he turns around, tells the kids, now don't get out of the car and don't touch the cat. It probably has leprosy or something. And he goes to the trunk and gets a towel out of the trunk and goes to get the cat that's there by the side of the road, just standing there. And the cat looks up when the dad reaches down for him and the cat hisses as loudly as he can and shows him his claws. Oh, come here, tiger, says dad, and takes a towel and wraps up the cat and gives him to mom in the car so no one is scratched or hurt, and then again tells the kids, don't touch it, it probably has leprosy. And then they get the cat home, and they bathe the cat, and they bathe the cat again, and they blow dry the cat, and they take care of the cat. And then they build the cat a bed, do the children, that is fit for a five-star resort, and they put the cat in it. And six weeks later, dad's in the rocking chair, dad's reading a magazine in front of the fire, just happens to reach down toward the cat. And this time there's no hiss. This time there's no claws. This time there's only the loud motor of a gentle purr. Now the question is, is that the same cat that he reached for six weeks earlier on the side of the road? Yes and no. Just as no one is ever the same once they've experienced love. 